Welcome to the Different People Podcast, where we explore inclusion, diversity, and belonging in conversations about the often untold experiences of different people. These conversations are candid, spontaneous, and can sometimes be difficult. Yet they are necessary and critical to the healthy functioning of communities, organizations, and society as a whole. My name is Lisa Schmidt. I'm a leadership coach, a senior consultant in organizational development, and a professional speaker. And my name is Dr. Raymond Abdurrahman. I'm a clinical and consulting psychologist, an expert in diversity and inclusion, executive coach, and a professional speaker as well. And we are your hosts. Raymond, I'm starting our conversation today with a bit of a heavy heart. I was just thinking of all the recent death and murder of people of color, Indigenous people, Black people, brown people, and their names are being shared a lot. And I think that's an important thing because saying people's names honors that this is a human life. And so we uh, recorded our last podcast after Ahmed Aubrey was killed, shot. George Floyd has since been killed by police. Breonna Taylor killed by police. <sighs> Just last night, Richard Brooks killed by police, all in the United States. In the UK, Shukri Yaye Abdi, a 12-year-old Somali immigrant, killed by her peers, young people who drowned her. And here in Canada, Chantal Moore on the 4th of June, and also recently in Canada and New Brunswick, Rodney Levi, an Indigenous man. How do we talk about making change when there is so much grief in us right now? Um, frankly, this is nothing new for people from marginalized groups, people of color. This is an ongoing thing. Uh, the grief is ongoing. We must live with it. We normalize it. It is a part of our everyday life. We must look beyond it. And there are times where it just gets so much that we, well, people protest. But this, is a, this grief isn't new to our communities. This grief, this pain, we are born into this grief. We are born into this pain. We do not see ourselves reflected in society. We are marginalized from day one. I often bring up the example of my son who, you know, as, much, as it speaks to me about how normalized it is even to me because you just carry on with your life. And the time when you notice it is when a new person in the world starts to say the things that you've taken for granted in your own mind that you've let exist and they start to, to verbalize the things that are really quite jarring that speak to a culture of white supremacy. And I want to come back to that, but I think it's important for us to know if we are going to be looking to make change that it has to start in our minds. It has to start with our thinking. And I think we are generally very complacent uh, when it comes to our thinking. Interestingly enough, I mean, any event, the first building block of any event, the, the first building block of the massacre in Syria, 
the first building block of segregation and apartheid in Israel and Palestine, the first uh, building block of the tallest building in the United States, uh, the building of New York City. People think it started with big Irish hands. No, all of those things started with a single thought. And it was built upon that thought that allowed us to engage in a behavior that produced the outcome that we see today, both good and bad. And yet, we are increasingly complacent about our own thoughts. They are the building blocks of everything that we are, of our society, of our world, and we pay no attention to them. And we tend to pay attention to the really tragic and very severe events, like the death and murders of all these people that you've mentioned before, And most people would stand up and say, that's horrible, but we have to wait until things are that bad before we admit to the horribleness of a culture of white supremacy that we live in that guides our thinking. Yeah. And and I just want to add, because I'd also noted uh, here also in Canada, the mosque uh, killing in Quebec that happened uh, in New Zealand, similarly, uh, killing in a mosque where people are living their lives. People are just living their lives. They're practicing their faith. They're in a car driving to get somewhere. They're sleeping in their house. They're sleeping in their own homes. And, and, and just, to, just to reinforce what you're saying, and I, I remember learning this many years ago. I worked uh, at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto, It had gone through a merger, four properties being put together. And one of those properties was the former, um, I believed it was called the Ontario Lunatic Asylum. And it was surrounded by a high wall. And people would, I'm told, uh, you know, it was built in the 1853, I believe. People would hold their breath as they walked by or went by in a streetcar because they didn't want to catch what people had there. And the building was built pretty much like a prison. And, and the reason I, I'm, I'm saying this is you build a structure based on what you think the people in it deserve or need. And I think we do that in society, right? It starts with a thought. Like if you think something is bad, you're, if that's your initial thought, then that's what you're going to build around. If you think that people who have mental illness are dangerous, you're going to want to put them behind a wall. If you think that people of color are dangerous, you know, you're, and I'm thinking maybe specifically about instances with the police, there's, there's probably a choice being made way before the actual moment where the shooting or the killing or the murder happens, that this is a way to resolve a problem with a black person. Well, the police officer who had his knee on George Floyd's neck probably believed that that was appropriate that what he was doing was the right thing. And that didn't come from nowhere. That came from a gradual buildup of his beliefs of how he saw black people. And that starts very young uh, and it continues. The research shows that we can change our thinking at any time, but the, the problem here is that we haven't changed our systems. And it's not even just about seeing us as dangerous. It's about seeing us as less than normal. And I speak often about this culture of white supremacy. And I say white supremacy is not just about a burning cross on people's lawns. It's about a burning cross in our minds. 
you know, that mm-hmm. we have a sense of what's considered to be professional. That comes from white culture. We have a sense of what's considered to be attractive and the standard is white. We have a sense of language. That's white. We have a sense of names and we adopt the names that came from a Eurocentric background. We have a sense of religion that comes from a white background. Like everything that we have, the dress that we wear, you know, comes from a white background. We, we have bleached the world of its diversity. We have bleached our society of it. And we accept people into our society when they quote unquote acculturate. And that means they adopt and take on the thinking of a majority people or a people in power. And when that happens, we've not just maintained a white supremacy, but we've continued to enslave a people that in order for them to feel like they get close to belonging, they must adopt that value and they have that burning cross in their mind. Right. Now, let me ask you this, because you you said a second ago, you know, the, the impact of language and the words that I'm hearing more right now are white supremacy, as, as you just mentioned, uh, white fragility, white privilege. These are, I mean, these words have existed, obviously, before, these concepts before, but what I'm, I'm really conscious of is that they're very pointedly and specifically made about whiteness. Can you yes. talk about that and, and well, how we're using language to describe these behaviors and these mindsets? Well, let me, let me go, let me, let me turn it back if that's okay. Yeah. I mean, those, that language can appear targeting. And how do you feel? Like, how do you feel when you hear those things? If, if I may ask. Yeah. Well, I remember the first time you said whites, you were talking about white supremacy in my mind was an image of a white supremacist. And I could not detach that the concept of white supremacy from this image of the extreme version of, uh, of its, that's manifestation. But I've since come to understand that it is a fact. It is a fact that we, uh, as you just described, the standards for what it means to excel are white. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I guess I've become... It, it, it took me some thinking to, to get there. I had to yeah. understand for myself what it meant. I also had to understand the concept of white fragility because I've, you know, for instance, one of the things I've been reading and people have been posting on social media that, you know, to, towards white people that, you know, your discomfort is nothing compared to the death and murder and killing of black people. Like you being uncomfortable talking about this should not be a reason that we don't talk about this. And so when I kind of see white fragility is, you know, is a sort of, oh, I don't want to get uncomfortable or I don't want to feel guilty or I don't know what to say. And it's true because people don't know what to say because we haven't had these conversations. And I think it does need to be called out, but the word fragility I, I had to work through as well. Well, and that's the thing, the working through, and that's, there's a great deal of emotion that comes with those words. 
because it can appear blaming. And so a lot of people, when they come from a majority culture or they're white, can feel blamed. And they'll say, what? I, I didn't do anything personally. I, why are you like, and that, you know, that concept of white guilt shows up. And there are people who will over identify with that and they feel horribly guilty for everything, quote unquote, their people. And I say that in quotes because I think our people, it needs to be everybody. But, you know, there's, there's a great guilt and anxiety that comes with that. But there's also a silence that comes with that. So what because do you mean? So, say more. Well, when you're afraid about saying or doing the right, the, right, the right thing, like amidst the tension that comes with all of this, when you're not sure if you're saying the right thing, people can often be very quiet. And it leaves the assumption that you're in, there's a complacency. Now, that doesn't mean that's what's happening internally. Uh, a lot of people want to say the right thing. They want to do the right thing, but they just don't know. So, so let me ask you this. How do we help people have these conversations? I, I mean, I can tell you, I don't feel I have very many role models for yeah. the conversations you and I have about this. I try to read extensively, but a lot of what I've seen from white people and white leaders to me is, and I've, I've used this term before, it's like the words on a live, laugh, love cushion. Like they're just words. They, they seem like decorations. They, they don't have substance and meaning. And these, I'm seeing, you know, organizations, white leaders use, like talked about things. And I'm like, that doesn't represent me. But I also don't know who to look to as a white person. Because I, I, I want to be educated by whites and by black and brown and indigenous people. I want to understand. I, I'm looking for role models. Yeah, I, I think you're a role model myself. I think you have these discussions quite beautifully, uh, quite openly. You open yourself up to a sense of vulnerability. And if you are quiet, you talk about what's happening in your head when you're quiet. And that's the important piece here when it comes to the process, is that we need to be able to have a discussion about what it means to us. We're so stuck on saying the perfect thing, and we're focusing on the words versus the process and the sentiments that we're trying to relay changing thinking is not going to happen in a single sentence, a single hashtag. It's going to happen with a conversation. And that's what we're missing. And the, the, the dilemma is that a lot of people don't want to have that conversation because of a sense of complacency, uh, because they find it too much work. And that's where the frustration and the anger comes from uh, in communities of color, where we're like, we're trying to have a conversation and you're not listening. I, you know, I had approached, we've been trying to get our team here has been trying to get uh, the holidays of different cultural communities in Canada acknowledged and celebrated uh, as civic holidays here in Winnipeg. Uh, it's a part of our winlove.ca campaign. And you'd be surprised. I mean, the idea I mean, is really loved by the media, but when it comes to leaders picking up the idea, it's a really slow change and it's not a big deal. And yet it's not a priority because it doesn't impact the leaders. I will talk about this quite openly, and I, I think it speaks to this passive racism, this lack of awareness and a sense of complacency. So uh, CBC actually asked the mayor, because we've approached the mayor several times to say, would you acknowledge? And in a nutshell, the response was, we've done enough. We're doing enough. 
We're and, doing enough uh, for you know, indigenous communities, for multiracial, yeah, yeah, multi-ethnic communities, we, right? We uh, we acknowledge Eid at City Hall and uh, and uh, and Hanukkah. Now, the interesting thing is to mention Hanukkah as the primary holiday would suggest there's a lack of awareness because that's not the major high holiday for the Jewish community. And it says already that answer speaks to the fact that there isn't enough being done because there isn't that awareness about that community. And that's exactly the point is that, you know, a tokenistic response doesn't do anything. And people are tired of, of being patronized, you know, patted on their head, and then kind of sent along their way. It is about time that we work towards a society uh, that is that is inclusive. It's not about people are being allowed in it's about the fact that we are all here to begin with now in order to do that you know you and i've talked about this thinking and in order to shift thinking we need to talk about how we're feeling about certain things because when white people don't open up about how they're feeling it's left to be assumed that they don't care right you know and really that silence might stick around for a sense of fear of offending but that silence speaks to a complacency. Yeah, and I'll, I'll say, and, uh, you know, if anybody would see me right now and probably see me in just about any podcast that we're recording, I, I'm not a blusher. I typically don't get flushed by embarrassment, but I do get flushed when we have these conversations because I do feel a sense of anxiety that I am going to demonstrate how little I understand that I'm asking naive questions. Uh, and I know you would never, you know, on air or maybe even off air, get angry with me and say that I've said something stupid, but you would call me on something if I've said something inappropriate. But I, I do feel a sense of going out into unknown territory in having these conversations, but I've, I've made a decision that that's not a good enough reason not to have them. You know, and I don't know that I would myself or anybody would see your opening up about that as a bad thing. Like that's usually the opening. That's that's what most people are looking for. You know, a sense of vulnerability. And most of the time, we don't we don't present that. Leaders really want to sit on their high horse. They don't want to appear vulnerable. But look, the honest truth is, we all we none of us know everything. None of us will know about all different cultural groups. Even in communities of color, we'll find differences. Um, you know, a poll a few years ago only found that rates of Islamophobia uh, were high in a variety of groups, actually relatively high in the black community, in the Latino community, in the Democrat community, and in a younger population as well, too. Like high, like 37% at the lowest. So, or no, 27% at the lowest, and then moving up to 37 and then up from there. Right. That speaks volumes that none of us are going to know everything about different people. And in order, if we are, in order for us to overcome that thinking, we need to admit what we don't know. We need to be honest about, about what we'd like to learn. And we need to have conversations to have that happen. And if, we, if that's the context that we live in, well, the anxiety drops. Like if organizations start to create that culture, the anxiety drops and the thinking starts to change. Right now with all of our walls up due to anxiety or what have you or feeling targeted, we can't have these conversations and thinking doesn't change. So one of the things I really like about you is the fact that we can have those. Like I, I'm not offended by people who don't know. I'm offended by people who make assumptions. And, right. and, and, then, 
And not just people who make assumptions, but people who refuse to change that assumption or refuse to learn about that. If you make an assumption that's wrong, I mean, like we, we all do that. And it's important that we pay attention to those small things because they lead up to the big things. Right. There's a giant butterfly having a very big butterfly effect, you know, on this stuff. Right. And a big massing of wings. It's actually a bat, a large vampire bat. And, you know, and the impact of all of this on our thinking, it grows and it blossoms right. that, you know, the people who have killed these people, uh, the people who had the mosque attack, the, that officer who had his knee on George Floyd's neck, that thinking started somewhere and it wasn't challenged. Yeah. And I, you know, talk, when you say that thinking started somewhere, I remember being quite young, like maybe six or seven and seeing a photograph of a young black girl holding a white kitten and mm-hmm. thinking, now I'm about six or seven, thinking mm-hmm. she should have a black kitten. Yeah. Yeah. Like right. I, and I can't tell you that, that I was told that I can't tell you, but there was something that I had picked up or understood around, I guess, you know, keep to your kind. Yeah. I don't know. Like it's, it's, it's hard for me to even, to even say what it is that I, I, I mean, I can't go back to that, that me that I was then, but clearly something had influenced my thinking yeah. as a child. Well, it doesn't just influence your thinking. It, it's influenced all of our thinking. You know, as a kid uh, growing up in Tanzania, I, the books I had to read were the books I came from London uh, in the United Kingdom. And I remember thinking, I really wish I had rosy cheeks. Right. You yeah. know, that was, that was the standard. Uh, and so it, it doesn't just happen with white people. It's with all of us. Right. And there's a standard of a sense of professionalism, a sense of uh, what we think is appropriate for culture. I mean, these kinds of thoughts don't just kill people. They make people's lives miserable. They impact the decision, a legal system or a judgment might make um, they impact custody like uh, with child and family services with indigenous families with muslim families yeah. and immigrant yeah. families they impact a sense of inclusion uh, they impact who we hire we tend the research shows we tend to hire people with more uh, white sounding names it impacts who we vote in if you look at the photographs of all the prime ministers of all the presidents i mean with, you know, putting aside Barack Obama, I mean, I've all been white. I look at the prime ministers in Canada, all white men, you know, with the exception of one woman who wasn't voted in. Right. You know, and she didn't last long. And the image shown of her was her crying and running, you know, from parliament. I mean, at the same time, I'm sure every single man who's led this country has wept at some point in time. But we have these biases that are shown and that impact our thinking. Well. Of course, we're going to have those views. Of course, people are going to be killed because we're not policing people's thoughts to be seeing what's developing. We are very complacent. We're not even policing our own thoughts. These things grow and they burgeon and they have a real impact. And there is a sense of like, so those words are targeting, but there is a sense of responsibility when you have a sense of power. And this, the frank truth is if you're white, you have power. I'll just say it. Well, know, and that's, I mean, and I, I raised the, word, the words earlier about white privilege. 
and I, I think for a vast majority of white people, it's kind of like being a fish in the ocean. Like when you're in water, you don't see the water, you right? Don't you see. don't see your privilege. I, you know, I've seen, you know, some very angry replies to posts that celebrate achievement of black, you know, musicians or politicians, or there was a, a photograph I saw of the class of 2021 graduating from Harvard University. It was a segment of the, the, the graduating class were black men and black women. And yet there's this, this sort of, you know, this idea, it's like, well, how can, how can white supremacy exist? Like, look, you know, look that, you know, Martin Luther King had the influence or that, you know, Oprah or, you know, I mean, there's many others. I'm, you know, I, I'm drawing a, I can just see faces and I can't remember names right now, but this idea that white supremacy does not exist really. And white privilege doesn't exist because of the handful of very successful black actors, celebrities, politicians. So, so how, how do we, how do we counter, like when you talked earlier about, you know, we have to help people think differently. How do we actually do that when people are so steeped in their white privilege that they can't even see that they're in it? Yeah. And, you know, I think just to go back before we continue, is like we look as the exception. We make the exception the rule. Right. You know, so we see people of color moving ahead, you know, but that's the exception. It's not the rule. And we and don't see want, the obstacles that they faced. Correct. And, and you know, I, I, if you have not been exposed to this point of view, I, I don't blame you for thinking that there is no racism because you've, you've not lived that life and you don't know. And so like uh, a white child will have greater power than a child of color and wouldn't know it. I mean, how would that child know? They, they, would, they would not be at fault accepting your privilege is not something that you, your privilege is not something that you've had intentional control over. It is a system that's maintained that. And you right. might not recognize that, but, but it's there. So stop taking it personally is step number one, I would say. People say a lot of things about people of color and yet we're trying, and that are false and wrong and people are not taking it personally. Well, the things that we're saying about the power of white supremacy, those are true, but they're not personalized to individual. My mom right. was saying the other day after listening to our podcast, she's now a fan of the podcast, by the way. And she said, uh, she's like, I really feel bad for a lot of white people who are trying so hard to help. And they get painted with the same brush as a lot of racists. And, and that's nice. She's like, you know, people paint us with the same brush. And it's, it's sad that a lot of white people get painted with the same brush. But what I would say is that, I mean, there's a lot of people I know who are really well-meaning and they, they openly deny the concept of racism, but still have a bias and an altered view of who, about people who are different from them. And that still does impact their thinking and their behaviors and their emotions. And so it's important that we call out that it's important that we pay attention to those kinds of things because it's that it's a very slippery slope from there. You know, like, uh, and I'm not calling you a racist, Lisa, but like, you know, we, we joked about, you know, you said, I thought halal was all healthy. And then, you know, I eat a good fair chunk of cake uh, in my diet and baked goods. And that, that was, uh, now it's not a big deal. Like, that seems like something harmless. And, and we had a discussion about it. It was good. But, but it's very easy to slip from that to something else. Like, if, if that wasn't adjusted, it, it, it almost exotifies people. You know, it creates a false view of people as, you know, like our view of Asian people as being smart, 
right? And it's a positive thing, so to speak, but at the same time, there's a weight that's cre- created and a right. pressure to perform, you know, and, 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 and puts people in certain boxes, you know, so it, it reduces my liberty to gorge on cake, you know, so to speak. <laughs> no? Oh, right. But so, so let me ask you this, like, what, what is it about us that sees difference, like, you know, objectively, and yet interpretively, subjectively, you know, objectively, we see different skin color, accent, appearance, clothing, family of origin, religion, etc. But when it enters into our brain, we then bring this subjective that different is bad, different is dangerous, different is them. There's no us. Like, what is it that happens in us that, 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 that this, and I, and I think I might imagine it kind of happens in less than a blink. Like it's, we, we do this so quickly, we don't even realize, you know, when I've heard uh, black men say, you know, they're standing on an elevator going somewhere and a white woman will be about to get on on a different floor and then pull back because they don't want to be in an elevator with a black man. Or if they do get on, they clutch their purse a bit closer. Like, what is it that, you know, what are the narratives and the belief systems and the things that happen inside our brains that, that do this, that, well, that, I that actually choose think, these behaviors? I, I think we've been trained to think that way. I don't think difference produces that. I think we can, I think we can naturally see differences. I think putting us, if we're in a vacuum, we can see differences, but differences doesn't always mean dangerous. But I think we've been trained to do that because if we look at everything that's influenced our thought, I mean, people, white people are different all the time. You know, if you see somebody with different color hair or different kinds of dress, you know, you're not as threatened by them uh, as a person who, a person of color, you know, but there's a reason why people of color are perceived that way. It's because we've been inundated with systems, you know, the media and whatnot that perpetuate stereotypes. And of course, that's what influences our thinking. To me, it's not that differences cause that problem. The fact is that we've been trained to believe that certain differences are more problematic And that's why it's critical for leaders to come back to shifting cultures uh, and making sure that there's a sense of normalcy to being different. And the only way we do that is that we celebrate uh, and and validate. There's got to be greater representation than there isn't. The representation representation that that does exist tends to be biased. Uh, it tends to reflect a stereotype. And so that's how we choose to see people on an ongoing basis. We can't live outside that perspective. We're stuck. Like if you Google, uh, Google image search certain things, you, what you're going to find is stereotypes. And you know, Google right. search images are populated by most popular votes. And so what you see on your screen changes, right? The first photograph is the one that's clicked on the most. And it speaks to what we choose to confirm our stereotypes. So if you type in, you know, attractive people, you will see mostly white people. Yeah. Uh, You might see Kanye West with Kim Kardashian, but, uh, but it's because of association that he's even on there. Uh, If you type in Muslim, you're going to see stereotypes of Muslims. If you see type in Jewish people, you'll see stereotypes of right. those images. And it's because that's what we tend to, we, that's what we want to validate. You won't see somebody like me, you know, you won't see if you type in black people, you know, like there, there's some movements here and there, but overall her thinking is biased because our culture is biased right. and we live in a white supremacist culture. And then what um, we do in, in building whatever, 
you know, the algorithms around, like if you look up leadership, imagery typically is, is, you know, white people and more often than not men in a suit. Um, and what, what I, you know, and I, I, I shared this with you, I saw this on Instagram and I'm just going to read it because it really struck me. Um, is it uh, the work that I like to do professionally is really helping leaders and organizations understand that you can't just keep doing the same things over and over again and call it transformation. And, uh, and this yeah. quote really to me spoke to that from uh, a different perspective related to the conversation we're having. So uh, the woman who posted it, Alison Thompson, she wrote, the thing about inclusion is that oppressed and marginalized groups don't want to be included in the systems, institutions, and structures that oppress and marginalize us but rather to be liberated from them and have the autonomy and agency to create new ones. Moving from working in the fields to working in the house is still ultimately working on the plantation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's that burning cross in our mind. You know, that we think we've made it. I, saw, I, I was so proud of myself when I bought myself a tweed suit a tailored tweed suit. And I realized the reason I thought that was so indicative of success was because I grew up in a British colonized culture where it was very British to have a tweed suit. And the thing that makes it really uncomfortable for all of us is, well, I mean, communities of color are used to this emotion because we experience it every day, but there's a privilege to not have this emotion if you come from a white community, because you don't have to deal with that pain and that struggle every day. And then all of a sudden, all this emotion is thrust upon you. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I, I'm, and then you don't want to deal with it. Yeah. You know, like people don't want, people don't want to deal with all that emotion. The truth is that communities of color are dealing with this emotion on an ongoing basis. You know, we face discrimination on a regular basis and we come home and we can only talk to people who are similar to us. And that's why you and I are having this podcast that we're trying to have this conversation with everybody. So people get used to hearing the emotion, talking about the discomfort. You know, you talked about a leader. Well, you're one of those people. Like if people can hear you admit that you feel uncomfortable and anxious and flushed when we talk about this stuff, even though you and I are friends already, and that you you are opening up to that, like that's 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 leadership, right? That's vulnerability because that's how change happens. I wouldn't have identified you as a racist person to begin with. I never have, but at the same time, you've also told me you've grown. You're like I might think has changed and so like i'm not entirely sure we need to be self-identified as racist in order for us to grow and that's that complacency we just assume we don't need to because we're okay the way that we are but we've always got room to grow yeah well growing is is can be terrifying right yeah. you have to you have to confront yourself to grow and you know, our brains are designed, I think, and you know, what I understand from neuroscience to be quite complacent. You know, I mean, even a simple thing is yeah. if there's a detour on, you know, your commute home, it can throw you off. I mean, and here, here's just a very light exercise I, I did years ago with the group. I was leading a session on, on change. And so everybody comes into the room and they're getting comfortable. And I say, okay, we're going to start in a couple of minutes, you know, grab a coffee if you haven't already. And so everyone's 
And I'm like, okay, everybody. Um, so at every table, I'd like half of you to just find another seat. Just get up, bring your stuff, move. And the amount of pissed off feelings that people would express, I'm not asking them to change their thinking. I'm not asking them to like to, to do all I'm asking is to like, and, and, and to me, it was so emblematic of, I just got comfortable. Don't make me change. And yeah. I, you know, again, this is like a small little sliver and one little exercise in a, you know, obviously the artificial environment of a classroom. But it, to me, really points to, I think, the broader piece where people don't like to change. And what I have to say I like and that I'm hopeful for now is that I, I, I and I just, I have to believe this and I do believe it. I don't think there's a going back anymore. Like when you expose to the level that everything has been exposed right now, there's going to be the discomfort and there's going to be pain. And to me, the best outcome of that is, is what we're just talking about is growth. Uh, I don't know, Lisa. Okay. I hate to be the cynic. Um, this stuff gets exposed all the time. Change really doesn't happen. You know, like I hope, I hope there's no going back. I hope we're making change. So am I being like an overly optimistic white person saying, yay, yay, or am I, am I naive? Maybe a bit of both, but, but only because you've, only because that's, that's your experience, right? And it's, it's nice that you and I are doing this. It's nice that people of all walks are joining some of those protests with like, you know, this has been done before. Like this At this scale? Well, I mean, there was the civil rights movement, right? There was an anti-apartheid thing. People protested against, you know, the war in the Middle East. Like, yeah, at this level. You saw a lot of people making a lot of movements. And you know, it's not changing. And it's not changing because the leaders don't really want to change. Like the leaders, like it's too much work. You know, that exercise you talked about, change. You know, people get used to change. Like if you, if you now said to that, that group that you're facilitating, now every 10 minutes or every five to 10 minutes, even if there's a variation, and you said, we're going to now switch seats on a regular basis, you know, that discomfort and that annoyance would go away very quickly mm-hmm. right. because they would expect it because, they're, because, they're t- because we know that that's the standard that we should be expecting. But the point here is that the standard that we have in place, we, we, this expectation, this privilege that we shouldn't have to change, that's right. privilege. Right. And, I shouldn't and yet, have to change. I shouldn't have to change. I'm just should, living my life. Why should I change? Right. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not and a yet, racist, will people say. Well, why would I? Like, I'm, I, I mean, I've, I've heard, I don't know that I've heard that as often as I have in the last few weeks. And people of color people from cultural or religious communities that are different from the majority, they have to change on a regular basis and we just get used to it. Right. We just get used to it. It's a part of identity. Michelle Byrne spoke to us about it last, last, uh, last podcast where she's like, where we have these multiple identities. Right. We just, we just get used to it. It's just who we are. It's a part of what we do. Right. You know, we can be our, we can be our, uh, ourselves at home, we can use certain language, we can be ourselves, we can talk about certain things, we can express our emotions the way we want it to. And then 
then we've got to be the good immigrant, you know, the good N-word, as some people have said, right. you know, because we tow the line. Where right. We tow the line. So, so in order for us to create change, we have to get used to that. We, and then that, like, things need to be stirred on a regular basis so they don't, you know, gel the way that they are. Because the way, gelling the way it is right now is not the way we want it to be. Right. So, you know, Raymond, you talk very articulately about this, and I don't mean that in the way that people say, wow, you're a person of color, you're so articulate. That's not what, I, that's not <laughs> I what I'm saying. It's all good. But, but what I'm trying to say is I can sense the anger and frustration, but I don't hear you communicating it. I don't know if that sigh says anything. I do this for work. <laughs> yeah. And in order for me to do this for work, like I, I'm, I'm trained as a therapist, right? So like, like I'm a psychologist, like we always have to put, like in addition to being a person of color where I've always put myself second, I'm trained to do this. Right. We put our emotions on the back burner, but there are times where like you can't always just be yourself. And, and there are times where I don't have to educate where there's an agitation that will show up. I'll be honest. Like, I, I don't but, mean to put you on the spot, but I just. No, no, it's true. It's true. But, but here's the other thing is that, and this is a privilege that some people have, is they don't always need to hide that emotion. They can just be expressive about it. And in order for me to be successful at what I do, I must always keep a part of me hidden. In this day and age, in order for me to be successful at what I do, I must always hide and that's what they consider professional. And means that professional means I must, like I've, when I've done this, when, I've di- when I do this work, there's always, almost always somebody who's there to challenge. There's always a racist in the room who has to say some really derogatory things to me, about me, about people of color. And I need to stand there politely, quote unquote, professionally, where it would be perfectly appropriate if somebody said something horrible that was personal to anybody else, you know, people would like, no. Now, thankfully, those people have also had the, re- the reaction of the people in the rest of the room, thankfully, right? Right. But, but the point is that they have that sense of audacity to be able to say that publicly. And I have, to, I have to tolerate it. And the truth is, if I didn't tolerate it, I'm not sure I would be perceived to be as good as my job. Right. What a loss. For all of us, if you and every person who feels unincluded is not bringing their full humanity, yeah, that that actually makes me sad. That's not a world I want to I want to live in. Yeah, but it's a it's a world that we've all been living in for a very long time. Yeah, you know. And, and I say, I, I want to I end with this one thing. I, I want people to be aware that discrimination and these problems don't just exist in a white versus colored world. They exist within communities of color as well, too, in cultural communities, uh, the Muslim community. And, and there are white supremacists out there who will use what I'm about to say and say, well, fix your own problems first and why are you coming after us? But I see this as something that we all have to work on as humanity. But even, even within cultural communities, there is, there's a hierarchy 
there's racism and discrimination that people who are lighter skinned, people who speak a particular language, people who come from a certain culture are seen as better. And that higher, those hierarchies exist everywhere. Uh, we all have those burning crosses in our minds and we apply them to people like us as well too. And so this call to action is not just to white people. This call to action is to all of us to be honest with ourselves about what the beliefs that we hold about ourselves, about our communities, about people who are different from us and, and to start to challenge those thoughts on a regular basis. And if you want an exercise, start writing them down and you'll be shocked. And then start to challenge those in writing. And eventually your thinking will shift. I, I can't thank you enough, Lisa, for, for being incredibly vulnerable. It means a great deal to me professionally, uh, but also personally. And there's a, there's a sigh of relief that comes with being able to talk to somebody who's willing to, to talk about how they feel and the vulnerability that they have, because now the vulnerability kind of makes us even, right? Like I feel vulnerable, <laughs> right? right? And, and now all of a sudden we have this like opportunity where we've, we've reduced, like we've removed any of that. Cause if you feel vulnerable for, you know, making mistakes or saying the wrong thing or assuming the wrong thing. And I feel vulnerable for being me and like all of a sudden our vulnerability can connect us to be able to share some thoughts that can build some bridges. Yeah, I'm, I'm immensely grateful on multiple levels. One is, and I'm referencing our previous podcast with Michelle, and she said it's one thing for white people to want to be present and inclusive, but we also have to decide, she um, identifies as a racialized woman, uh, we also have to decide if, uh, if we're going to let you in. And, uh, and you've let me in, so I'm, I'm deeply grateful for that. Yeah. It's my pleasure. Thank you all for listening. Um, we hope that this podcast helps you uh, make some change in your life, not just personally, but also professionally. We all come from communities and organizations and our change has to start there. If you're a leader and you're listening to this, uh, and I think we're all leaders in some ways, identify the leader in you and start to be able to help promote this kind of change in the way that we think and see People are different from us so that we can start to erase a sense of white supremacy in our world and our culture. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Lisa, for always being a great co-host and wonderful person to speak with. I hope you'll join us soon. Please like and share our podcast. The more we share this kinds of thoughts, uh, the more likely we are to change thinking. So like, share, and if you have any thoughts or ideas or are interested in being a guest on our uh, conversation podcast, please contact us at which email, Lisa? Podcast at differentpeople.ca. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you for spending time with us. To learn more about our work and listen to other episodes, please visit differentpeople.ca. Post-production services provided by jonathanlay.net. And thanks to Blue Eye Music for our music theme. You can reach us all through the contact information in the show notes. And new episodes of the Different People podcast are uploaded regularly to Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play. Please join us again. And until soon.